In my elementary school, the tough kid was Jimmy. He was the kid who would steal your lunch money, take your bike, slug you as soon as talk to you. Jimmy was a classic bully, starting fights with the least provocation or none at all. The lifelong legacy of childhood aggressiveness in kids like Jimmy has emerged from many studies. As we've seen, the family life of such aggressive children typically includes parents who alternate neglect with harsh and capricious punishments, a pattern that, perhaps understandably, makes the children a bit paranoid or combative. Another trait of such children is that once they're in the heat of anger, they can think of only one way to react, by lashing out. This testifies to a deep perceptual bias in people who are unusually aggressive. They act on the basis of the assumption of hostility or threat, paying too little attention to what is actually going on. Once they assume threat, they leapfrog to action. These perceptual biases toward hostility are already in place by the early grades. While most children, and especially boys, are rambunctious in kindergarten and first grade, the more aggressive children fail to learn a modicum of self-control by second grade. Of all children, these are the ones most at risk for eventually committing violent crimes. The drift toward crime shows up surprisingly early in these children's lives. By fourth or fifth grade, these kids are rejected by their peers and are unable to make friends easily. They've become academic failures. Feeling themselves friendless, they gravitate to other social outcasts. In the high school years, this outcast group typically drops out of school in a drift toward delinquency, engaging in petty crimes such as shoplifting, theft, and drug dealing. But timely help can change these attitudes and stop a child's trajectory toward delinquency. Several experimental programs have had some success in helping such aggressive kids learn to control their antisocial bent before it leads to more serious trouble. One at Duke University worked with anger-ridden grade school troublemakers in training sessions for 40 minutes twice a week for 6 to 12 weeks. The boys were taught, for example, to see how some of the social cues they interpreted as hostile were in fact neutral or friendly. One of the key skills for anger control was monitoring their feelings, becoming aware of their body's sensations such as flushing or muscle tensing as they were getting angry, and to take those feelings as a cue to stop and consider what to do next rather than strike out impulsively. Particularly in young people, problems in relationships are a trigger for depression. The difficulty is as often in children's relationships with their parents as it is with their peers. Depressed children and teenagers are frequently unable or unwilling to talk about their sadness. They seem unable to label their feelings accurately, showing instead a sullen irritability, impatience, crankiness, and anger, especially toward their parents. A new look at the causes of depression in the young pinpoints deficits in two areas of emotional competence, relationship skills on the one hand and a depression-promoting way of interpreting setbacks on the other. While some of the tendency to depression almost certainly is due to genetic destiny, some of that tendency seems due to reversible pessimistic habits of thought that predispose children to react to life's small defeats by becoming depressed. And there's evidence to suggest that the predisposition to depression, whatever its basis, is becoming ever more widespread among the young. These millennial years are ushering in an age of melancholy, just as the 20th century became an age of anxiety. International data show what seems to be a modern epidemic of depression, one that's spreading side by side with the adoption throughout the world of modern ways. 
Each successive generation worldwide since the opening of the century has lived with a higher risk than their parents of suffering a major depression. Not just sadness, but a paralyzing listlessness, dejection and self-pity, and an overwhelming hopelessness over the course of life. And those episodes are beginning at earlier and earlier ages. Childhood depression is emerging as a fixture of the modern scene. Dr. David Cufford, chairman of psychiatry at the University of Pittsburgh Medical School, points to a trend. With the spread of industrialization after World War II, in a sense nobody was home anymore. In more and more families there's been growing parental indifference to children's needs as they grow up. This is not a direct cause of depression, but it sets up a vulnerability. Early emotional stressors may affect neuron development, which can lead to a depression when you're under great stress even decades later. That depression should not just be treated but prevented in children is clear from an alarming discovery. Even mild episodes of depression in a child can augur more severe episodes later in life. This challenges the old assumption that depression in children doesn't matter in the long run, since, as some people claim, children might grow out of it. The sullenness children feel leads them to avoid initiating social contacts or to look away when another child is trying to engage them, a social signal the other child only takes as a rebuff. The end result is that depressed children end up rejected or neglected on the playground. Just as with adults, pessimistic ways of interpreting life's defeat seem to feed the sense of helplessness and hopelessness at the heart of children's depression. What has only emerged recently, though, is that children who are most prone to melancholy tend toward this pessimistic outlook before they become depressed. This insight suggests a window of opportunity for inoculating them against depression before it strikes. The good news? There's every sign that teaching children more productive ways of looking at their difficulties lowers their risk of depression. In a study of one Oregon high school, about one in four students had what psychologists call a low-level depression, not severe enough to say it was beyond ordinary unhappiness as yet. Some may have been in the early weeks or months of what was to become a more severe depression. In a special after-school class, 75 of the mildly depressed students learned to challenge the thinking patterns associated with depression, to become more adept at making friends, to get along better with their parents, and to engage in more social activities they found pleasant. By the end of the eight-week program, 55% of the students had recovered from the mild depression, while only about a quarter of equally depressed students who were not in the program had begun to pull out of the depression. A year later, a quarter of those in the comparison group had gone on to fall into a major depression, as opposed to only 14% of students in the Depression Prevention Program. Though they lasted just eight sessions, the classes seemed to have cut the risk of depression in half. Other experts on childhood depression applaud the new programs. If you want to make a real difference for psychiatric illness like depression, you have to do something before the kids get sick in the first place, commented Maria Kovacs, a psychologist in Pittsburgh. The real solution is a psychological inoculation. During my days as a graduate student in clinical psychology in the late 1960s, I knew two women who suffered from eating disorders. One was a mathematician who today would be diagnosed with anorexia nervosa. The other, a librarian, would be diagnosed with bulimia. In those years, there were no such labels. When a study was done with more than 900 girls in the 7th through 10th grades, emotional deficits, particularly a failure to tell distressing feelings from one another and from hunger, and to control them, 
were found to be key among the factors leading to eating disorders. Even by 10th grade, there were 61 girls in this affluent suburban Minneapolis high school who already had serious symptoms of anorexia or bulimia. The greater the problem, the more the girls reacted to setbacks, difficulties, and minor annoyances with intense negative feelings that they could not soothe, and the less their awareness of what exactly they were feeling. When these two emotional tendencies were coupled with being highly dissatisfied with their body, then the outcome was anorexia or bulimia. Overly controlling parents were found not to play a prime role in causing eating disorders. Also judged irrelevant were such popular explanations as fear of sexuality, early onset of puberty, and low self-esteem. Instead, the causal chain this prospective study revealed began with the effects on young girls of growing up in a society preoccupied with unnatural thinness as a sign of female beauty. Well in advance of adolescence, girls are already self-conscious about their weight. But the Minneapolis study showed that an obsession with being overweight is not in and of itself sufficient to explain why some girls go on to develop eating disorders. Some of these people are unable to tell the difference between being scared, angry, and hungry, and so lump all those feelings together as signifying hunger, which leads them to overeat whenever they feel upset. Something similar seems to be happening in these girls. The combination of poor inner awareness and weak social skills means that these girls, when upset by friends or parents, fail to act effectively to soothe either the relationship or their own distress. Instead, their upset triggers the eating disorder. Psychologist Gloria Leon believes effective treatments for such girls need to include some remedial instruction in the emotional skills they lack. She told me, clinicians find that if you address the deficits, therapy works better. Dropping out of school is a particular risk for children who are social rejects. The dropout rate for children who are rejected by their peers is between two and eight times greater than for children who have friends. Two kinds of emotional proclivities lead children to end up as social outcasts. One is the propensity to angry outbursts and to perceive hostility even where none is intended. The second is being timid, anxious, and socially shy. But over and above these temperamental factors, it's children who are off, whose awkwardness repeatedly makes people uncomfortable who tend to be shunted aside. One way these children are off is in the emotional signals they send. They're not seen as fun to be with, and they don't know how to make another child feel good. Children who are socially rejected are only half as likely as their peers to have a best friend during the crucial years of elementary school, and so they miss out on one of the most essential chances for emotional growth. One friend can make the difference, even when all others turn their backs and even when that friendship is not all that solid. There's hope for rejected children despite their ineptness. Stephen Asher, a University of Illinois psychologist, has designed a series of friendship coaching sessions for unpopular children that has shown some success. Identifying third and fourth graders who are the least liked in their classes, Asher gave them six sessions in how to make playing games more fun through being friendly, fun, and nice. To avoid stigma, the children were told they were acting as consultants to the coach, who was trying to learn what kinds of things make it more enjoyable to play games. The children were coached to act in ways Asher had found typical of more popular children. For example, they were encouraged to think of alternative suggestions and compromises rather than fighting if they disagree about the rules, to remember to talk with and ask questions about the other child while they play, 
to listen and look at the other child to see how he's doing, to say something nice when the other person does well, to smile and offer help or suggestions and encouragement. This mini-course in getting along had a remarkable effect. A year later, the children who were coached were now solidly in the middle of classroom popularity. None were social stars, but none were rejects. While in the United States, use of most drugs among young people generally tapered off in the 1980s, there's a steady trend toward more alcohol use at ever younger ages. For most alcoholics and drug abusers, the beginnings of addiction can be traced to their teen years, though few of those who so experiment end up as alcoholics or drug abusers. By the time students leave high school, over 90% have tried alcohol, yet only about 14% eventually become alcoholics. Of the millions of Americans who experimented with cocaine, fewer than 5% became addicted. Certain emotional patterns seem to make people more likely to find emotional relief in one substance rather than another. For example, there are two emotional pathways to alcoholism. One starts with someone who was high-strung and anxious in childhood, who typically discovers as a teenager that alcohol will calm the anxiety. A second emotional pathway to alcoholism comes from a high level of agitation, impulsivity, and boredom. This pattern shows up in infancy as being restless, cranky, and hard to handle, in grade school as having the fidgets, hyperactivity, and getting into trouble. While depression can drive some to drink, the metabolic effects of alcohol often simply worsen the depression after a short lift. People who turn to alcohol as an emotional palliative do so much more often to calm anxiety than for depression. Though the predisposition to substance abuse may in many cases be brain-based, the feelings that drive people to self-medicate themselves through drink or drugs can be handled without recourse to medication, as Alcoholics Anonymous and other recovery programs have demonstrated for decades. Acquiring the ability to handle those feelings, soothing anxiety, lifting depression, calming rage, removes the impetus to use drugs or alcohol in the first place. These basic emotional skills are taught remedially in treatment programs for drug and alcohol abuse. It would be far better, of course, if they were learned early in life, well before the habit became established. To be sure, not every mental disorder can be prevented, but there are some and perhaps many that can. Sociologist Ronald Kessler told me we need to intervene early in life. Take a young girl who has a social phobia in the sixth grade and starts drinking in junior high school to handle her social anxieties. By her late twenties, when she shows up in our study, she's still fearful, has become both an alcohol and drug abuser, and is depressed because her life is so messed up. The big question is, what could we have done early in her life to have headed off the whole downward spiral? The same holds true, of course, for dropping out or violence or most of the litany of perils faced by young people today. An instructive case in point is sexual abuse of children. As of 1993, about 200,000 substantiated cases were reported annually in the United States, with that number growing by almost 10% per year. With these risks in mind, many schools have begun to offer programs to prevent sexual abuse. Most such programs are tightly focused on basic information about sexual abuse, teaching kids, for example, to know the difference between good and bad touching, alerting them to the dangers, and encouraging them to tell an adult if anything untoward happens to them. But a national survey of 2,000 children found that this basic training was little better than nothing in helping children do something to prevent being victimized, whether by a school bully 
or a potential child molester. By contrast, children given more comprehensive training, including related emotional and social competencies, were better able to protect themselves against the threat of being victimized. They were far more likely to demand to be left alone, to yell or fight back, to threaten to tell, and to actually tell if something bad did happen to them. Such findings have led to a re-envisioning of what the ingredients of an optimal prevention program should be, based on those that impartial evaluations showed to be truly effective. In a five-year project sponsored by the W.T. Grant Foundation, a consortium of researchers studied this landscape and distilled the active ingredients that seemed crucial to the success of those programs that worked. The list of key skills the consortium concluded should be covered, no matter what specific problem it's designed to prevent, reads like the ingredients of emotional intelligence. The emotional skills include self-awareness, identifying, expressing, and managing feelings, impulse control and delaying gratification, and handling stress and anxiety. A key ability in impulse control is knowing the difference between feelings and actions and learning to make better emotional decisions by first controlling the impulse to act, then identifying alternative actions and their consequences before acting. Many competencies are interpersonal, reading social and emotional cues, listening, being able to resist negative influences, taking others' perspectives, and understanding what behavior is acceptable in a situation. No single kind of intervention, including one targeting emotions, can claim to do the whole job, but to the degree emotional deficits add to a child's risk, attention must be paid to emotional remedies, not to the exclusion of other answers, but along with them. The next question is, what would an education in the emotions look like? It's a strange roll call going around the circle of 15 fifth graders sitting Indian style on the floor. As a teacher calls their names, the students respond not with a vacant here, standard in schools, but instead call out a number that indicates how they feel. One means low spirits, ten, high energy. Today's spirits are high. Jessica, ten, I'm jazzed, it's Friday. Patrick, nine, excited, a little nervous. Nicole, ten, peaceful, happy. It's a class in self-science at the Nueva Learning Center near San Francisco, a private school that offers what may be a model course in emotional intelligence. The subject in self-science is feelings, your own and those that erupt in relationships. The topic, by its very nature, demands that teachers and students focus on the emotional fabric of a child's life, a focus that's determinedly ignored in almost every other classroom in America. The strategy here includes using the tensions and traumas of children's lives as the topic of the day. Teachers speak to real issues, hurt over being left out, envy, disagreements that could escalate into a schoolyard battle. As Karen Stone McCown, developer of the self-science curriculum and director of Nueva, put it, learning doesn't take place in isolation from kids' feelings. Being emotionally literate is as important for learning as instruction in math or reading. Self-science is a pioneer and early harbinger of an idea that's spreading to schools coast to coast. Names for these classes range from social development to life skills to social and emotional learning. Some, referring to Howard Gardner's idea of multiple intelligences, use the term personal intelligences. The common thread is the goal of raising the level of social and emotional competence in children as a part of their regular education. 
not just something taught remedially to children who are faltering and identified as troubled, but a set of skills and understandings essential for every child. Interventions designed to target specific deficits in emotional and social skills can be highly effective as buffers for children. But those well-designed interventions in the main have been run by research psychologists as experiments. The next step is to take the lessons learned from such highly focused programs and generalize them as a preventive measure for the entire school population, taught by ordinary teachers. This new departure in bringing emotional literacy into schools makes emotions and social life themselves topics rather than treating those most compelling facets of a child's day as irrelevant intrusions, or, when they lead to eruptions, relegating them to occasional disciplinary trips to the principal's office. The classes themselves may at first glance seem uneventful, much less a solution to the dramatic problems they address, but that's largely because, like good child-rearing at home, the lessons imparted are small but telling, delivered regularly and over a sustained period of years. That's how emotional learning becomes ingrained. As experiences are repeated over and over, the brain reflects them as strengthened pathways, neural habits to apply in times of duress, frustration, hurt. And while the everyday substance of emotional literacy classes may look mundane, the outcome, that's decent human beings, is more critical to our future than ever. Compare a moment from a class in self-science with the classroom experiences you can recall. A fifth-grade group is about to play the cooperation squares game in which the students team up to put together a series of square-shaped jigsaw puzzles. The catch? Their teamwork is all in silence with no gesturing allowed. The teacher, Joanne Vargo, divides the class into three groups, each assigned to a different table. Three observers, each familiar with the game, get an evaluation sheet to assess, for example, who in the group takes the lead in organizing, who's a clown, who disrupts. The students dump the pieces of the puzzles on the table and go to work. Within a minute or so, it's clear that one group is surprisingly efficient as a team. They finish in just a few minutes. A second group of four is engaged in solitary parallel efforts, each working separately on their own puzzle but getting nowhere. Then they slowly start to work collectively to assemble the first square and continue to work as a unit until all the puzzles are solved. But the third group still struggles with only one puzzle nearing completion and even that looking more like a trapezoid than a square. Sean, Fairley, and Raymond have yet to find the smooth coordination that the other two groups fell into. They're clearly frustrated, frantically scanning the pieces on the table, seizing on likely possibilities, and putting them near the partly finished squares, only to be disappointed by the lack of fit. The tension breaks a bit when Raymond takes two of the pieces and puts them in front of his eyes like a mask. His partners giggle. This will prove to be a pivotal moment in the day's lesson. Joanne Vargo, the teacher, offers some encouragement. Those of you who have finished can give one specific hint to those who are still working. Dagan moseys over to the still-struggling group, points to two pieces that jut out from the square and suggest you've got to move those two pieces around. Suddenly Raymond, his wide face furrowed in concentration, grasps the new gestalt and the pieces quickly fall into place on the first puzzle, then the others. There's spontaneous applause as the last piece falls into place on the third group's final puzzle. But as the class goes on to mull over the object lessons and teamwork they've received, there's another, more intense interchange. Raymond, tall and with a shock of bushy black hair cut into a longish crew cut, and Tucker, the group's observer, are locked in contentious discussion over the rule that you can't gesture.
Tucker, his blonde hair neatly combed except for a cowlick, wears a baggy blue T-shirt emblazoned with the motto, Be Responsible, which somehow underscores his official role. Tucker says, You can't too offer a piece. That's not gesturing. Raymond insists, vehement, but that is gesturing. Fargo notices the heightened volume and increasingly aggressive staccato of the exchange and gravitates to their table. This is a critical incident, a spontaneous exchange of heated feeling. It's in moments such as this that the lessons already learned will pay off and new ones can be taught most profitably. And as every good teacher knows, the lessons applied in such electric moments will last in students' memories. Vargo coaches, This isn't a criticism. You cooperated very well, but Tucker... Try to say what you mean in a tone of voice that doesn't sound so critical. Tucker, his voice calmer now, says to Raymond, You can just put a piece where you think it goes. Give someone what you think they need without gesturing, just offering. Raymond responds in an angry tone. You could have just gone like this. He scratches his head to illustrate an innocent movement, and he'd say no gesturing. There's clearly more to Raymond's ire than this dispute about what does or does not constitute a gesture. His eyes constantly go to the evaluation sheet Tucker has filled out. Though it has not yet been mentioned, the evaluation sheet has actually provoked the tension between Tucker and Raymond. On the evaluation sheet, Tucker has listed Raymond's name in the blank for who is disruptive. Fargo, noticing Raymond looking at the offending form, hazards a guess, saying to Tucker, he's feeling that you've used a negative word, disruptive, about him. What did you mean? I didn't mean it was a bad kind of disruption, says Tucker, now conciliatory. Raymond isn't buying it, but his voice is calmer, too. That's a little far-fetched, if you ask me. Vargo emphasizes a positive way of seeing it. Tucker's trying to say that what could be considered disruptive could also be part of lightening things up during a frustrating time. Raymond protests, now more matter-of-fact. But disruptive is like when we're all concentrating hard on something, and if I went like this, he makes a ridiculous clanning expression, his eyes bulging, cheeks puffed out. That would be disruptive. Vargo tries more emotional coaching, telling Tucker, In trying to help, you didn't mean he was disruptive in a bad way, but you send a different message in how you're talking about it. Raymond is needing you to hear and accept his feelings. Raymond is saying that having negative words like disruptive feels unfair, he doesn't like being called that. Then to Raymond, she adds, I appreciate the way you're feeling assertive and talking with Tucker. You're not attacking, but it's not pleasant to have a label like disruptive put on you. When you put those pieces up to your eyes, it seems like you were feeling frustrated and wanted to lighten things up, but Tucker called it disruptive because he didn't understand your intent. Is that right? Both boys nod assent as the other students finish clearing away the puzzles. This small classroom melodrama is reaching its finale. Do you feel better, Vargo asks, or is this still distressing? Yeah, I feel okay, says Raymond, his voice softer now that he feels heard and understood. Tucker nods, too, smiling. The boys, noticing that everyone else has already left for the next class, turn in unison and dash out together. As a new group starts to find their chairs, Vargo dissects what has just transpired. The heated exchange and its cooling down draw on what the boys have been learning about conflict resolution. What typically escalates to conflict begins, as Vargo puts it, with not communicating, making assumptions, and jumping to conclusions, sending a hard message in ways that make it tough for people to hear what you're saying. Students in self-science learn that the point is not to avoid conflict completely, 
but to resolve disagreement and resentment before it spirals into a fight. There are signs of these earlier lessons in how Tucker and Raymond handled the dispute. Both, for example, made some effort to express their point of view in a way that would not accelerate the conflict. This assertiveness, as distinct from aggression or passivity, is taught at Nueva from third grade on. While at the beginning of the dispute neither boy was looking at the other, as it went on they began to show signs of active listening, facing each other, making eye contact, and sending the silent cues that let a speaker know he's being heard. For anyone familiar with the rough-and-tumble of fifth-grade boys, what may be most remarkable is that both Tucker and Raymond tried to assert their views without resorting to blaming, name-calling, or yelling. Neither let their feelings escalate to a fistfight, nor cut off the other by stalking out of the room. At the traditional circle that opens each class in self-science, the numbers are not always so high as they were today. When they're low, the ones, twos, or threes that indicate feeling terrible, it opens the way for someone to ask, do you want to talk about why you feel that way? And if the student wants, no one is ever pressured to talk about things they don't want to. It allows the airing of whatever is so troubling and the chance to consider creative options for handling it. In use for close to 20 years, the self-science curriculum stands as a model for the teaching of emotional intelligence. The lessons sometimes are surprisingly sophisticated. As Nueva's director, Karen Stone McCown, told me, when we teach about anger, we help kids understand that it's almost always a secondary reaction and to look for what's underneath. Are you hurt or jealous? Our kids learn that you always have choices about how you respond to emotion, and the more ways you know to respond to an emotion, the richer your life can be. A list of the contents of self-science is an almost point-for-point -point match with the ingredients of emotional intelligence. The topics taught include self-awareness in the sense of recognizing feelings and building a vocabulary for them, and seeing the links between thoughts, feelings, and reactions, knowing if thoughts or feelings are ruling a decision, seeing the consequences of alternative choices, applying these insights to decisions about such issues as drugs, smoking, and sex. Self-awareness also takes the form of recognizing your strengths and weaknesses and seeing yourself in a positive but realistic light, and so avoiding a common pitfall of the self-esteem movement where too easy praise pumps up a false confidence. Another emphasis is managing emotions, realizing what's behind a feeling, for example the hurt that triggers anger, and learning ways to handle anxieties, anger, and sadness. Still another emphasis is on taking responsibility for decisions and actions, and following through on commitments. A key social ability is empathy, understanding others' feelings and taking their perspective and respecting differences in how people feel about things. Relationships are a major focus, including learning to be a good listener and question asker, distinguishing between what someone says or does and your own reactions and judgments, being assertive rather than angry or passive, and learning the arts of cooperation, conflict resolution, and negotiating compromise. There are no grades given in self-science. Life itself is the final exam. But at the end of the eighth grade, as students are about to leave Nueva for high school, each is given a Socratic examination, an oral test in self-science. One question from a recent final, describe an appropriate response to help a friend solve a conflict over someone pressuring them to try drugs.
Some programs in emotional and social skills take no curriculum or class time as a separate subject at all, but instead infiltrate their lessons into the very fabric of the school's life. One model for this approach, essentially an invisible emotional and social competence course, is the Child Development Project, created by a team directed by psychologist Eric Schaps. The project, based in Oakland, California, is currently being tried in a handful of schools across the nation, most in neighborhoods with a decaying core. The project offers a prepackaged set of materials that fit into existing courses. Thus, first graders in their reading class get a story, Frog and Toad are Friends, in which Frog, eager to play with his hibernating friend Toad, plays a trick on him to get him up early. The story is used as a platform for class discussion about friendship and issues such as how people feel when someone plays a trick on them. A succession of adventures brings up topics such as self-consciousness, being aware of a friend's needs, what it feels like to be teased, and sharing feelings with friends. A set curriculum plan offers increasingly sophisticated stories as children go through the elementary and middle school grades, giving teachers entry points to discuss topics such as empathy, perspective-taking, and caring. As developmental psychologists and others map the growth of emotions, they're able to be more specific about just what lessons children should be learning at each point in the unfolding of emotional intelligence. By fourth and fifth grade, as peer relationships take on an immense importance in their lives, they get lessons that help their friendships work better, empathy, impulse control, and anger management. For impulse control, there's a stoplight poster displayed prominently with three steps. Red light. Stop, calm down, and think before you act. Yellow light. Say the problem and how you feel. Think of lots of solutions. Think ahead to the consequences. Green light. Go ahead and try the best plan. The stoplight notion is regularly invoked when a child, for example, is about to strike out in anger or withdraw into a huff at some slight or burst into tears at being teased, and it offers a concrete set of steps for dealing with these loaded moments in a more measured way. Beyond the management of feelings, it points a way to more effective action and as a habitual way of handling the unruly emotional impulse. To think before acting from feelings, it can evolve into a basic strategy for dealing with the risks of adolescence and beyond. Some of the lessons relate more directly to the temptations and pressures for sex, drugs, or drinking that begin to enter children's lives. Some of the most effective programs in emotional literacy were developed as a response to a specific problem, notably violence. One of the fastest growing of these prevention-inspired emotional literacy courses is the Resolving Conflict Creatively program in several hundred New York City public schools and schools across the country. The Conflict Resolution course focuses on how to settle schoolyard arguments that can escalate into incidents like the hallway shooting of Ian Moore and Tyrone Sinclair by their classmate at Jefferson High School. One key to the success of the conflict resolution program is extending it beyond the classroom to the playground and cafeteria, where tempers are more likely to explode. To that end, some students are trained as mediators, a role that can begin in the latter years of elementary school. When tension erupts, students can seek out a mediator to help them settle it. The schoolyard mediators learn to handle fights, taunts, and threats, interracial incidents, and the other potentially incendiary incidents of school life. Beyond the mediation of a given dispute, the program teaches students to think differently about disagreements in the first place. 
As Angel Perez, trained as a mediator while in grade school, put it, the program changed my way of thinking. I used to think, hey, if somebody picks on me, if somebody does something to me, the only thing was to fight, do something to get back at them. Since I had this program, I've had a more positive way of thinking. If something's done negative to me, I don't try to do the negative thing back. I try to solve the problem. And he's found himself spreading the approach in his community. As family life no longer offers growing numbers of children a sure footing in life, schools are left as the one place communities can turn to for correctives to children's deficiencies in emotional and social competence. That's not to say that schools alone can stand in for all the social institutions that too often are in or nearing collapse. But since virtually every child goes to school, at least at the outset, it offers a place to reach children with basic lessons for living that they may never get otherwise. Emotional literacy implies an expanded mandate for schools, taking up the slack for failing families and socializing children. This daunting task requires two major changes, that teachers go beyond their traditional mission and that people in the community become more involved with their schools. There's a self-selection in the kind of teacher who gravitates to courses such as these because not everyone is suited by temperament. To begin with, teachers need to be comfortable talking about feelings. Not every teacher is at ease doing so or wants to be. There's little or nothing in the standard education of teachers that prepares them for this kind of teaching. For these reasons, emotional literacy programs typically give prospective teachers several weeks of special training in the approach. Beyond teacher training, emotional literacy expands our vision of the task of schools themselves, making them more explicitly society's agent for seeing that children learn these essential lessons for life, a return to a classic role for education. This larger design requires, apart from any specifics of curriculum, using opportunities in and out of class to help students turn moments of personal crisis into lessons in emotional competence. It also works best when the lessons at school are coordinated with what goes on in children's homes. Many emotional literacy programs include special classes for parents to teach them about what their children are learning, not just to complement what's imparted at school, but to help parents who feel the need to deal more effectively with their children's emotional life. Another way in which this focus reshapes schools is in building a campus culture that makes it a caring community, a place where students feel respected, cared about, and bonded to classmates, teachers, and the school itself. In short, the optimal design of emotional literacy programs is to begin early, be age-appropriate, run throughout the school years, and intertwine efforts at school, at home, and in the community. Perhaps the most telling sign of the impact of such emotional literacy classes are the data at a school where the unbendable rule is that children caught fighting are suspended. As the emotional literacy classes have been phased in over the years, there's been a steady drop in the number of suspensions. Last year, says the school's principal, there were 106 suspensions. So far this year, and we're up to March, there have been only 26. There have been a handful of objective evaluations, the best of which compare students in these courses with equivalent students not taking them, with independent observers rating the children's behavior. Pooling such assessments reveals a widespread benefit for children's emotional and social competence, for their behavior in and out of the classroom, and for their ability to learn. First, there's more emotional self-awareness, improvement in recognizing and naming their own emotions. 
better able to understand the causes of feelings, recognizing the difference between feelings and actions. Second, they're better at managing emotions, better frustration tolerance and anger management, fewer verbal put-downs, fights, and classroom disruptions, better able to express anger appropriately without fighting, fewer suspensions and expulsions, and less aggressive generally. More positive feelings about self, school, and family, better at handling stress, less loneliness, and social anxiety. They're better at harnessing emotions productively, more responsible, better able to focus on the task at hand and pay attention, less impulsive with more self-control. They improve in empathy and reading emotions, better able to take another's perspective, improve sensitivity to others' feelings, better at listening to others, and they handle relationships better, increased ability to understand relationships, better at resolving conflicts and negotiating disagreements, better at solving problems in relationships, more assertive and skilled at communicating, more popular and outgoing, friendly and involved with peers, more concerned and considerate, more harmonious in groups, more sharing, cooperative and helpful, more democratic in dealing with others. One item on this list demands special attention. Emotional literacy programs improve children's academic achievement scores and school performance. This is not an isolated finding. It recurs again and again in such studies. In a time when too many children lack the capacity to handle their upsets, to listen or focus, to rein in impulse, to feel responsible for their work or care about learning, anything that will buttress these skills will help in their education. In this sense, emotional literacy enhances schools' ability to teach. Even in a time of back-to-basics and budget cuts, there's an argument to be made that these programs help reverse the tide of educational decline and strengthen schools in accomplishing their main mission, and so are well worth the investment. Beyond these educational advantages, the courses seem to help children better fulfill their roles in life, becoming better friends, students, sons, and daughters, and in the future, more likely to be better husbands and wives, workers and bosses, parents and citizens. While not every boy and girl will acquire these skills with equal sureness, to the degree they do, we're all the better for it. A rising tide lifts all boats, as Tim Shriver put it. It's not just the kids with problems, but all kids who can benefit from these skills. These are an inoculation for life. There's an old-fashioned word for the body of skills that emotional intelligence represents. Character. Character, writes Amitai Etzioni, the George Washington University social theorist, is the psychological muscle that moral conduct requires. And philosopher John Dewey saw that a moral education is most potent when lessons are taught to children in the course of real events, not just as abstract lessons, the mode of emotional literacy. If character development is a foundation of democratic societies, consider some of the ways emotional intelligence buttresses this foundation. The bedrock of character is self-discipline. The virtuous life, as philosophers since Aristotle have observed, is based on self-control. A related keystone of character is being able to motivate and guide oneself, whether in doing homework, finishing a job, or getting up in the morning. And, as we have seen, the ability to defer gratification and to control and channel one's urges is a basic emotional skill, one that in a former day was called will. 
Being able to put aside one's self-centered focus and impulses has social benefits. It opens the way to empathy. Empathy leads to caring, altruism, and compassion. These capacities are ever more called on in our increasingly pluralistic society, allowing people to live together in mutual respect and creating the possibility of productive public discourse. Despite high interest in emotional literacy among some educators, these courses are as yet rare. Most teachers, principals, and parents simply do not know they exist. The best models are largely outside the education mainstream in a handful of private schools and a few hundred public schools. Of course, no program, including this one, is an answer to every problem. But given the crises we find ourselves and our children facing, and given the quantum of hope held out by courses in emotional literacy, we must ask ourselves, shouldn't we be teaching these most essential skills for life to every child, now more than ever? And if not now, when? For more information on emotional literacy courses, write The Collaborative for the Advancement of Social and Emotional Learning, or CASEL, C-A-S-E-L, Yale Child Study Center, P.O. Box 207900, New Haven, Connecticut, 06520.